such a, 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 a much more advanced audience. I usually get surly 18-year-olds wearing sweatpants on a Wednesday morning. So this is, everyone seems to have pants on. It's refreshing. <laughs> and there isn't this awful odor in the room that just sort of hangs there of unwash. Um, so my name is Ryan Duns. I am an associate professor of theology here at Marquette. I spoke at this event last year. I was in the middle of writing a book that, is, that will be published in a few months called The Theology of Horror. Uh, it's the first theological treatment of contemporary horror films, which may not sound like much to you, but I can get students to take a class based on horror films and get them to do theological reflection much with much greater ease than I can say, okay, well, come learn about Christianity. So I have to go in the back door with them, which is an age-old Jesuit principle. Bring them in your door to get them out yours. Oh, 100%, 100%. As I was walking over this morning, it, it occurred to me that the best metaphor I can think about uh, for introducing the examine to you happened to me on Tuesday. In 2004, just before I entered the Society of Jesus, I had LASIK surgery and had my eyes, my vision corrected. And for 20 years, pretty good. Until at Christmas, I started to realize my, my arms were, <laughs> were not getting uh, long enough. And as I started to look, and I, I, I realized my, my vision was getting bad. I had my eyes tested. And on Tuesday, I had to go to Costco. Best deal I've ever gotten on, on anything. I got protein bars, I got almonds, and new glasses. So they gave me the glasses and said, try them on and see what you did, you know, what you think. And I, standing in front of the mirror, I'm like, this is going to be great. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> so that's what I look like. <laughs> the glasses allowed me to see more clearly the reality that was already in front of me. And the practice of the examine is exactly that. It is to give you a set of skills and built up through practice, repeated practice, mind you, to allow you to see the world as it is and on its terms. There's an adage, we see the world not as it is, but as we are, we impose on it. The practice of the examine is a way of taking a step back from the frenzy of our day-to-day -day lives and looking at the world with a bit of distance, with a bit of reverence, with a bit of hospitality to the world as it is, not necessarily as we want it to be. Now, as Stephen mentioned, the practice of the examine, oh, if we hit the slide one up, is there two, there's a number of ways we could talk about this, and I'm gonna give lots of images uh, to think this through. The purpose of the examine is to find God and the way God works in the unfolding story of our lives. That God is not some mysterious detached force way out there that has some mysterious plan for me that I may be able to tune into. Rather, the examine is a practice that develops skills for coming to know how God is always at work in your life, working through you, through your history, through your life story, to bring you to flourishing, to help you, <clears throat> and through the practice of communal examining your, your communities, to help your church community thrive. And what this involves is looking at our past to see how God is working in our present, 
and calling us into the future. The examine is, in, in, in that way, is an attempt to find the way God is always accompanying us, always empowering us, always inviting us to be who we are called to become. Now, as an age-old practice, I mean, Jesuits, we think we invented everything, but we didn't, surprisingly. When I was in the fourth grade, so what I'm going to introduce you today, this, this seemingly you know, ancient practice that has its roots in, Sto in, in, in Stoicism and Marcus Aurelius. We're going to use St. Ignatius. But my introduction to it and my be the beginning of my practice of it, I think goes back to 1989. So I was in the fourth grade at St. Brendan's Elementary School in North Olmsted, Ohio, right across the street from my mom and dad's house. And I had Sister Victoria. Sister Victoria, uh, truly, I mean, like to, to a fourth grader, seemed like she was 986 years old. And she bragged about being older than, than Moses. She was probably at the time 70. But to a fourth grader, what do we know? But Sister Victoria taught every, every student for generations at St. Brendan's Elementary School. She was a sister of St. Joseph. And her, the way she taught what we now today know as the, I know as the examine and we know as the examine was this. Every morning, she would tell us, in her very smart skirt suit that she wore every day, and sensible shoes, every morning when you wake up, before your feet hit the floor, you say, good morning, Lord. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. What are we going to do today? And you look forward to the day ahead. And Lord, I have a math test at 10 o'clock this morning. Help me do well on the math test. I have flag football after school today. Help my team perform. I have music lessons. I hope my music teacher is in a good mood tonight. My grandma and grandpa are coming to visit. I hope we have a good evening. And then, at the end of the day, when your head hit the pillow before you tried to fall asleep, well, Lord, how did we do today? Review your day say thank you, and let's try again tomorrow. As a fourth grade, and she, every day, did you all say good morning, Lord, today? And you know, a bunch of fourth graders said, yes, sister. Did you say thank you? Yes, sister. And then you get the one kid, I fell asleep. Well, try again tonight. But what sister was doing, without our knowing it, was equipping us with a set of skills to begin to notice how God was at work in our lives. That, that Jesus, for us as children, was not, oh, well, we heard about him at church on Sunday. He was a living, breathing part of our realities. He was a friend who accompanied us. As I grew older, a musician who accompanied me, the one who played and performed so that I could play and perform better. Jesus as empowerer, Jesus as summoner, Jesus as encourager, Jesus as chastiser. Sorry, Lord, that was a, I was a real jerk to my mom today. I was disrespectful to my father. That's not how, that's not how you've called me to be. 
That practice of, of examining, of scrutinizing, reflecting, considering, discerning our day-to-day -day experiences builds up a way of moving forward in our lives. So what I want to do with you today is four things. I, I find if I tell my students there's only four things, they can count them down and they know it'll, it'll end soon. The first of them is I want to introduce you to St. Ignatius of Loyola, brief biography of who he is. Um, the second thing is I'm going to give you the steps of the exam, and there are five steps we will look at. We are going to look together at a poem that I think captures very well the dynamics of what we are doing in the practice of the exam. And then in a 10-minute block, I'm going to have you do an exam. And maybe this is the first time it will take exactly 10 minutes. So no hostages being taken today. But it's these, the 10 minutes we spend today, I hope, become for each one of you the beginning of a, a daily practice of coming to step back, to, to examine, to observe, and to begin to notice patterns in the, the emerging story of your life and your congregation's life that will give you clarity about how God is at work and calling you to become who you are intended to be. Does that sound all right? Okay, and if there are any questions, just raise your hand. I'm happy to be interrupted. So we can advance one slide. Um, this is St. Ignatius, so not that there's no quiz on this, but 1491, he's born. So age of discovery, of, uh, 1492, Columbus sails the ocean blue, 1491, just to give you some uh, idea of, of when in time he is. And he lives until the year 1556, so um, about 65 years old when he, when he dies. Ignatius is born in... Uh, in Basque country, he is a, a Spaniard. He is a minor noble figure, comes from a large family. He's not going to inherit the land that his family owns. Um, he's far down in the, in the pecking order. But he has status and good connections. So we have Ignatius, who spends his early life at court. He, is in, he has beautiful handwriting. He's worried about how he looks. He, he is concerned with prestige, honor, moving up the, the ranks of society. Not unlike many of us, certainly not unlike the students I teach. They're upwardly mobile, they have talent, they have ambition, and they want to be successful. They want to be powerful, they want to be prestigious, they want the world to know who they are. Ignatius is very much an everyman in that way. In 1521, St. Ignatius uh, is a soldier, and there is the Battle of Pamplona. The Battle of Pamplona is fought between the Spanish and the French, and he, St. Ignatius, is uh, fighting for, for the Spanish. The city of Pamplona is laid under siege, and the Spaniards all take the, they, they, they see the writing on the wall and they're like, we are never going to defeat this army. This is beyond our capacity. But Ignatius, in sort of like a Braveheart, Mel Gibson-ish moment, gets up and delivers this rallying speech. And he, he inspires his, his fellow countrymen to take a stand. They will not back down. It's sort of like the Avengers, if you're familiar with the Marvel Universe. You know, it's Captain America versus the uh, onslaught horde of the bad guys. 
Ignatius was very good at very many things, but in a few, within hours, he had been hit by a cannonball in the leg that shattered his leg. So Ignatius may be the patron saint of discernment and the founder of the Society of Jesus. He is not the patron saint of dodgeball because he did not get out of the way. This is a grievous wound for the Spanish surrender. The French, though admiring him for his bravery and heroic uh, sentiment, uh, carry him back to his family's castle in Spain. Now that is quite a bit of a journey for him. And on that journey, and now imagine, I mean, I'm not good if I get a splinter and his entire leg is shattered. And they carry him on a litter. There's no ambulance service, of course. So they get him back to the castle and the bone has already started to set and he's starting to heal. And once it heals, the bone, for a man who is very concerned about his good looks, um, the bone doesn't set quite right and there's a, an odd protuberance in the legs so that his tights, and these aren't even Lululemon tights, I don't know uh, what the brand is, but they're, they're not, I mean, he's concerned about it. This protuberance, he realizes, is going to be unsightly. So he has it sawed off without anesthesia and stretched because he also doesn't want to walk with a limp. Well, that didn't work because he walks for the rest of his life with a limp. This leaves him with months of convalescence in a, within a castle that does not have a lot of books. But the two books that he does have, and these are very important for us, are The Life of Christ and The, Life of the, Saint, the Lives of the Saints. And why does that matter? Because with the many hours he has before him, Ignatius reads and reflects and rereads and re-reflects and rereads and rereads and rereads. And he allows his imagination to interact with the life of Jesus, with the lives of the saints, what St. Saint Francis did, what St. Dominic did, what St. Anthony did, what St. Mary, what St. Margaret, I mean, you name it. And using his imagination, he became like what most of us notice in our fourth, like a four and five-year-olds, if you have grandkids, nieces, nephews, children, you know how little kids are so able so easily to get themselves into a story? They become Dora the Explorer, they become a, a, a gecko boy, I'm just thinking whatever my nephew, what, whatever his latest thing was, some car, Transformers. And it's not just that like, hello, I'm gecko boy. They play and they pretend and they let their, their imaginations run wild and your living room becomes a jungle scene where an adventure is unfolding. Well, St. Ignatius started to put himself into the scenes with Jesus, into the scenes with St. Dominic. And he began to notice throughout all of those experiences of his imagination, the way his heart was being moved. There were times when his heart was set on fire excited, and that excitement lasted for a long time. There were other times he started to imagine, well, when my leg is healed and I'm able to walk again, I will go back to court and I will pursue the life I tried to live before. And sometimes those ideas were really exciting to him and he could imagine what it would be like to be a, sh a swashbuckler once again. But then it would wane and his imagination would grow cool. And he would say, well, maybe that's not as good an idea as I thought. 
the first fervor, the first excitement cooled off, and you'd be left bored, tired, irritable. But when you imagine being with Jesus, when you imagined doing things for Jesus, like St. Francis did or St. Dominic did, he found peace and joy, excitement, a, a reality that this was going to be arduous and difficult, but peace. So even in times of difficulty, he could find a lasting sense of peace that he was being guided and directed. And that is what the examine is in one way attempting to do, to allow you to tap into the way God is inspiring and guiding you, consoling you, giving you a sense of peace as you are being moved into your futures. And so the, the line I use here up at the top, St. Ignatius has a calamitous breakdown. The world as he thought it was going to be, all his carefully laid plans dashed. And in the rubble of what was, there was a breakthrough to what he could not imagine. But when he allows God to guide him, becomes more than he could have ever dreamed. We are here, I mean, when you consider this, we are here today because he couldn't get out of the way of a cannonball. We are here today because this is a man in his convalescence did not lament the breakdown of what was, but allowed his imagination to be turned, his heart to be moved in a way that would affect the shape of the Catholic Church, of Christianity, of higher education. If you're familiar with it, with basketball in the United States. Jesuit teams seem to do very well at basketball. All of this for want of good tights. We're here. Maybe that should be an article I write, for want of good tights. Part of this, and so I, I mean, people, people criticize Catholics for not being scriptural, so I want to, to give lie to that for a moment. Um, in St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, this is his prayer for readers in Ephesians 3. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that he may grant you in accord with the riches of his glory to be strengthened with the power, with power through his spirit in the inner self. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the holy ones what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to accomplish far more than all we ask or imagine by the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. The practice of the examine exposes and invites us to enter into the depths that only God knows. And in those depths where we know Christ's peace, where we know Christ's consolation, where we know Christ's call individually, we come to know Christ's peace and Christ's call communally. And if, and if Christ can work through any one of our lives, imagine what he can do through all of our lives working in concert together with him. Directed not by my will, let my will be done, 
but let thy will be done. And that is, it's not easy, it's not a formula. You're not going to find this on Oprah's book list. But it's a practice that every one of us can avail ourselves of and grow into and transform the communities we live within and serve. Are we good so far? So there's, there's St. Ignatius. I mean, there's so much more if you, I mean, there's loads of books on him. He's very interesting. But uh, this is, I think, sufficient for, for now. Let's see how we're doing. Oh, we're grand. All right, we can advance up. So uh, just by way of, of uh, general interest, uh, this is St. Ignatius who, so, in, so he does heal, again, walking with a limp. Um, and begins to refer to himself not as a soldier, but in his autobiography as the pilgrim. Here's a distinction I use with my students. We live in a tourism age. I mean, you really can't watch, t watch television and you see like Viking tours and you go down a river or you go have a tourism experience and you go and see things. And how do we measure tourists' movements? Well, by selfies and Instagram. And you get a, a quick picture of it, and then you move on to the next thing. I'm always disheartened when I've been to Italy and I see people at, you know, in front of masterpieces of art and architecture, and they're taking idiotic selfies. Like, let me lean over into the fountain. I'm like, why? Look at it. It's like going to a concert and everyone's watching the concert through their screen. Like you're going to watch it when you get home, like the volume's going to be good. <laughs> Foolish. Tourism. I just want to see and say that I saw it. Ignatius understood that a pilgrim is a person who undertakes a journey inspired by a story. The pilgrim wants to experience for herself, for himself, the story that has been shared. I want to go to this sacred site, not to take a selfie, but because people have gone before me and have come back and said how they've been transformed by this journey. And Ignatius sets forth on a journey of discovery, of encountering others, of discerning God's will, and we're the beneficiaries of that. As part of his journey, he goes, and this is the illumination at the Cardinaire River. And in his autobiography, he will talk about the way he was resting by the riverside and he had this moment of absolute illumination where it, it's like the world all of a sudden opened itself to him and made sense. Not like recipe sense, not direction sense, but he saw that God was at work in all things. That God is the innermost, most intimate reality in everything and can be found in everything. That the world is charged, the world shimmers with divine presence. If, and we can perceive it, if we have eyes to see it. And we, and we open our eyes, kind of like putting on glasses. Through the, I think through the practice of the examine, we begin to notice, we begin to see more deeply those hidden depths of, 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 of Ephesians 3, where God is at work. 
Um, and so this, uh, I, just, I just share this with you because the uh, photograph on the right-hand side, that's from the chapel here at Marquette University and in my house. And so every day at Mass, this is you know, our, our altar on the, on the bottom there. But this is what my community beholds. And what I love about it especially is that as the light hits it, different aspects of the scene are brought into relief. So the shading changes, the water seems to move with the sun. It's a very dynamic uh, depiction, but it is also, it, it, it's, it's fitting for the type of exercise that the examine is. So there are five steps to the examine. And I think these are in your notebook, but you can, you can annotate them as you wish. The examine is stepping back to move forward. This is the way we become spiritual pilgrims. This is the, this is, uh, the pre-workout for our spiritual pilgrim, pilgrimage. And for Ignatius, the first step to, eat, to every experience of the examine is to ask for light. So to calm yourself and ask for God to illuminate your life your experiences, your feelings, and just to rest for a few moments in that illumination. As I get older, I'm more and more comfortable with the first step because I, th I think of it, in, if, you've, if you have children, you know when you hold up a fussy baby and the baby's like, cranky and moving and then slowly begins to calm down and then all of a sudden you're just holding this baby and you're like all right i'm not moving again <laughs> i will never move again if it keeps you still asking for light is in a way it's our practice of becoming still of letting ourselves be enveloped or held in a presence that we cannot control, but a presence that loves us and wants to guide us and make us whole. So we ask for light, and then we move to giving thanks. So often and so easily we work in a deficit mindset our prayer can easily be grousing, complaining, informing the all-knowing one about all the things we think he really needs to know right now. Ignatius counters that by saying, start from gratitude. It may be something small. I had a great cup of coffee this morning. On the way over, I thought we were in a different location. I walked in and I saw a friend of mine whose son is visiting Marquette. I haven't seen him in eight years. He was coming down a flight of steps. I was texting these guys like, where are we supposed to be? And there's Paul, eight years out of my cluelessness, I run into. That will be the first thing today I mention, my gratitude, just to see an old friend randomly. But you start with a disposition of gratitude. What am I thankful for? What in my life gives me joy? has brought me hope today. When you practice this in communion with one another, 
what are you as a community grateful for? How has God been tilling soil and turning up fruit in your lives? From gratitude, we move to review and recognize our feelings, how we are being affected. And I think for many of us, this is the hardest part because we are very uncomfortable with our feelings. We are very uncomfortable with feelings. Feelings are not to be trusted. They're never to be trusted, obviously. Our feelings will, uh, will, will, we think, will lead us astray. Ignatius thought opposite. Ignatius thought that God spoke, speaks to each one of us through our desires and through the way our hearts are moved. And so the step of reviewing, maybe it's your day, maybe it's your week, Maybe you do an examine after your, your congregation has a meeting. Maybe the Catholics, we have the parish council. The parish council does a meeting and then you do an examine. And you review the experience and you allow yourself to recognize how you're being touched, moved, or affected by what's gone on. Again, stepping back to see how you're being moved. May, I think so, we're often uh, primed in like a fight or flight mode, or we go to meetings with our agenda that we want to see done. Like, and, and we can be very crafty with this. Like, how am I going to manipulate? How do I, you know, how do I get that vote? How do I get this person to do what I want? The practice of reviewing: How did I act in this situation? How was I interacting with others? How did that make me feel? Do I feel as if I were acting for the greater good and the greater glory of God, or was I acting just out of selfish motives because I want my will to be done, not the divine will? And so whether that's a positive feeling, a feeling of hope, peace, joy, a negative feeling, anger, irritation, sadness, and those aren't that negative in a more, uh, I'm not saying that in an evaluative way, but something that weighs on me. You know, I was, I was in a faculty meeting and a colleague who always has an opinion on everything, whether it seems to be warranted or not, had to make a comment again and I snapped. You know, like, all right, we've heard enough. Let's move on to a more pertinent topic. I cut him off and it felt good at that moment to shut that down. But as I look back on it, I'm like, that wasn't the way I was, that's not what a leader would do, that's not what a Christian would do, that's not how a person deserves to be treated. Yeah, it was, it was short and pleasant and punchy in the moment, but have I done, have I built the body of Christ up? Have I contributed to the culture of my department? Have I advanced our mission? No. I need to apologize. I need to make amends. I need to persevere. And that's what praying about the future leads you to do. The examine is meant to give you concrete steps that you can take. So I start from, from a disposition of, Lord, I need you to shine your light on my life and experience. I want to give you thanks for giving me this opportunity and all the ways you are at work in my life. 
I ask that you, un that you reveal to me and help me to understand how I am feeling. Am I being drawn toward you or am I being pulled from you by these events? Let me focus and drill down into that. And finally, I ask that you give me the courage to move into the future to be who you've called me to become. And this is a daily practice. Good morning, Lord. How are you today? What are we going to do today? Asking for light and giving thanks. Review ahead of time. What are we going to do today? Help me. At the end of the day, thank you, Lord, for today. How did we do today? What will we do tomorrow? The bookends of a day for a little fourth grader became the bookends. I'm 44 now, so it's almost 35 years of, of doing this. But I still, feet don't hit the floor until I say good morning, and the eyes don't close until I say good night. Are we all right so far? Moving along. Good, grand. Slide. This, we're going to do, I'm going to read this poem with you. This is the, uh, a work from the British-American poet Denise Levertov. When I teach, um, when I teach the freshmen, they, I think they, they look at poetry as, oh, good, this is my excuse to like, zone out for a few minutes. I hope you don't zone out, because I think this is one of the more beautiful poems that I have ever encountered. And it encapsulates very nicely the dynamics of what we are trying to do. So uh, we, we will not go into the dynamics of a Petrarchan sonnet, other than to say the, uh, the sonnet is broken up into, this is a sonnet, 14 lines. There's the, the sestet and the octet, six lines and eight lines. The six lines I would like to propose to you, for many of us in our congregations, this is our story. And what we are looking for in that big rift between the sixth and seventh lines is the, the experience of moving from a breakdown and confusion to a breakthrough that manifests itself when we are attentive to it. So I'm going to read it once, and then we'll look at it a second time with some commentary. Days pass when I forget the mystery. Problems insoluble in problems offering their own ignored solutions jostle for my attention. They crowd its antechamber along with a host of diversions, my courtiers wearing their colored clothes, cap and bells. And then, once more the quiet mystery is present to me. The throng's clamor recedes. The mystery that there is anything, anything at all, let alone cosmos, joy, memory, everything rather than void. And that, O oh Lord, creator, hallowed one, you still, hour by hour, sustain it. Days pass when I forget the mystery. Days pass when the untold number of tasks pile up around me that I cannot be bothered to think about 
the God who loves me and sustains me, the God who works through me, who enkindles my heart, who has called me into being and sustains me in my existence. Problems, insoluble and problems offering their own ignored solution, jostle for my attention. They crowd its antechamber. I have a tuition payment I have to make. Church attendance is low. The church needs a new roof. I need a new roof. The boiler isn't working. Family members are sick. My son has, is struggling again with his addiction. My daughter and her husband are having problems. My grandson or granddaughter have medical issues that are undiagnosed quite yet, and we don't know where this is going. My spouse is struggling with a job. All of these things pulling on us. The psychologist Kenneth Gergen refers to this as multifrenia. The image I like to think of is walking, like if you've ever worn like a nice sweater and it gets snagged and that the thread gets pulled and then you try to fix it and the more you try to fix it, the more it becomes disentangled and it unravels and becomes a mess. How many of us, the, the, the nice sweater that we think we would like to have is pulled in a thousand different directions by all of the things that jostle and, and carouse for our attention. All the diversions, courtiers, this, I love, I mean, courtiers, things that seduce us, that come into our imaginations, that intru the intrusive thoughts that, that plague us at night and keep us awake. The intrusive thoughts or the good ideas that we say, I'm going to pray today. I'm going to, I'm going to spend 15 minutes in prayer. And then these diversions and turns are pulling us away and saying, oh, did you turn off the stove? You know what, today would be a great day to bake bread. You know your favorite TV show is on. You should go rake the lawn because everything seems better than doing the one thing you know you want to do. So distracted. And then there's this long rift in the poem in some ways, very small, in other ways, unimaginable. And then, unexpected, sometimes unnoticed at first, that mystery is present again. In the middle of the breakdowns of our daily life, in the middle of the, the chaos and the rubble, that quiet mystery can become present to you again. And this is the practice of the examine, is allowing the mystery to be present to you on its terms, not the agenda you have set for it. The quiet mystery is present to me. The throng's clamor recedes. And there's a moment of stillness and peace of illumination at the gratuity and gift of existence, of this grace, that anything at all, let alone cosmos, joy, memory, everything rather than void, that there's something rather than nothing, that each one of us, each one of us, precious in God's sight, created, sustained in existence, each unique with your gifts and talents, your struggles, your joys, your burdens, each one, precious, that you should exist, that anyone should exist, 
everyone as a gift. Imagine if you could see every other human being as a gift, as, as a bearer, as a sacrament of God's presence in this world. That God in each one of our lives, in God in each one of us is disclosed in a new and unprecedented way in our laugh, in our tears, in our smile and the caress we give to our loved ones, that God is being made known through each one of us, that God is made known in and through all things. And we ex so our joys, our memories, everything that exists, and that beneath it all, God, O Lord, Creator, Hallowed One, you still, hour by hour, sustain it. The breakthrough of the examine is to pierce the chaos of our lives, to risk piercing that chaos in our, my daily life, in our congregation's lives, and allow the one who sustains all things to be made known and to be embraced in a way that transforms us from the inside out. So it's not a self-improvement plan. It's better. It's a world improvement by letting God do what God desires to do. If you think of it like the examine is a way of recalibrating your God positioning system, coming to know better where God is and how God is at work in your life, in your congregation, in history, here and now. Perfect. So um, what we're going to do is practice this. Does that sound good to you? All right, so what I would like you to do is put, you know, kind of just sit up straight, feet flat on the floor. I'll have you close your eyes in a moment. If, if you have um, purses or valuables, just leave them out where I can get them as I walk by. <laughs> you have keys if you have a Lexus. I've always wanted one of those. I'm going to lead you through a little breathing exercise, and then we're going to walk through the five stages of the examine. At each stage, about two minutes. The focus today, I would like you to develop your personal practice. So today we're not yet doing an examine for our churches. This is, this is meant to give you an opportunity to practice this discipline in your own life. So sitting up straight, back against the seat of the chair, I ask you to breathe in through your nose, two, three, four, out through your mouth, two, three, four, five, six. In through your nose, two, three, four, out through your mouth, two, three, four, five, six. In through your nose, two, three, four, out through your mouth, two, three, four, five, six.
Begin by inviting God's light to envelop you, to illuminate you. And just let that loving presence be around you. Take a moment to give thanks for some gift you have received today. Big or small, it does not matter. A good cup of coffee, a convenient parking spot, meeting someone from your congregation in a new way, learning something new, no matter Just allow yourself to feel gratitude and to give thanks.
using your imagination. Review the last 24 hours. Are there any events in the past day that stand out to you? As you bring these events to mind, how do they make you feel? Do they bring you consolation, joy, hope, and peace? Do they leave you irritable, fearful, irritated? No matter what it is that you feel, stay with it for a moment. Sit with that feeling. Bring your attention to that one feeling in a deeper way. How does that feeling communicate to you? What is it telling you about your world and about how you interact with it? Listen carefully to that feeling and what it's trying to tell you.
the examine prepares each one of us to put our flesh in the game of life, to respond to the way that the Lord is calling us generously and with our whole selves. As you look to your future today, can you think of one concrete way you can respond to the way that the Lord is at work and moving your heart? I teach a class once every four semesters called Contemplation and Action. And in that class, we spend the first 15 minutes of each session in contemplative silence. So we do the breathing exercise. It's a full 15 minutes, no interval bells, and then 15, then the three bells bring us out. It terrifies the students on the first day because syllabus day, they think, oh, we're just gonna talk about what we're gonna do. I throw them in head first. We are very unaccustomed to silence. It is, it can be unnerving and you become aware of your body in totally different ways. But that practice of 10, 15 minutes of silent, attentive stillness, repeated day after day after day, alone and in community with others, allow, it becomes the practice that attunes you and your community to something greater than we can imagine, to someone greater than we can hope. When I explain Ignatian spirituality, I use the acronym, like, so if you go to the gym and you, this is audience participation, so if I do curls, what muscle am I working on? Bicep, and if I do overhead press, shoulders and lats, all this, so, and if I do squats, my butt. The Ignatian, so we do spiritual exercises to become fitter and better. So the spiritual exercise of the examine is your way of exercising your Ignatian butt. We become aware 
Become aware of God at work in your life, asking for light and giving thanks. Understanding how God is affecting your heart and moving, inspiring, or sometimes pushing us away. So becoming aware, understanding, and then taking action. That it has to be put into practice. That, 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 that you know, Jesus' words in, say, John's Gospel, like, what are you looking for? Come and see. It's get up off your chair. There are, there are no armchair disciples as the examine sees it. We have to get up and we have to put ourselves in the mix. The examine is our way, a way, not the only way, of our showing up so that God can show us what's up and where we're being called to go. And so I conclude, as I did last year, and I just, again, it comes from my own Catholic sensibilities. You know, Catholics, we are sacramental. I mean, well, Christians are sacramental. But the, the Catholics have the belief that um, God is, and is revealed through the finite actions of the world. And in the Catholic sacraments of the Eucharist, that the body and blood of Christ are given to us to share. And I'm often, and I, I remain struck that if bread and wine, cheap bread, flat, not particularly tasty, and really cheap and not delicious wine, can become the sacramental bearer of Jesus Christ, what can we do? If bread and wine can become the bearer, the sacraments of Christ's presence in the world, and they're just, they have no choice in the matter, what can we do when we open our hearts willingly and offer our lives excitedly to the Lord who transforms and makes all things new and sends us out into the world to be leavened for a world, to be light and darkness, to be bearers of hope and glad tidings and joy to our families, to our communities, to the greater Milwaukee, Wisconsin area, to the nation and to the world. And so if this, if the practice and it is a practice that must be done daily. It must be done in community. If this practice can help you tap into those, the depths of Ephesians, where the Spirit is at work, and if it helps you to unleash that Spirit in your lives, in your community's lives, it's not just you, it's not just your community that will thrive. It's the world around us. And for that, I, I thank you for, for making, for being willing to take the risk of unleashing the spirit in a world that desperately needs it. Mm -hmm.